Welcome to the Heroes at Home podcast, where we believe heroes can thrive both at work and at home. This podcast is for those who stand watch while we sleep, who run into buildings while others run out, for those who deploy to hard places to have hard fights, and for the families that support them. Through candid conversation, we will discuss the side of things that don't get glorified in the media, what happens when they come home. We'll be talking with heroes from all walks of life and their partners, children, friends, and beyond, so together we can build a stronger family. I'm Noel Metter, CEO, joined by my co-host, Kenny Thomas. Kenny. Happy Tuesday. Or Wait, are we not supposed to say days of the week because it could be any day hey, for our listeners? We can say whatever we want, man. It's uh, free reign, free speech. At the end of the day, the real question of the day is not what day is it, but did you pass the exam? I smoked it. So let me just brag <laughs> here for a second. Yeah, and maybe, and maybe tell our listeners a little bit of context for the exam because, you know, there could be a lot of different exams. I've been studying to get my instructor rating, my instrument instructor rating for airplanes. And it's been fun kind of re-engaging my brain because... In addition to the check rides and the, um, the oral interviews that the examiners do, you also have to go take these written tests that the FAA do. So you got to go back and study and you have to learn and they're multiple choice. And you kind of, you kind of figure it out after you do, this was my fifth test. So there's just like five of them I had to take to get to where I'm at. The guy, the old guy that was the proctor at the testing center goes, He's handing me the test score. I walk out of the room and he goes, are y'all done? He goes, here, let me get it printed out for you. And he looks at it and he goes, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what'd you score on your other tests? I'm like, well, which ones? And he started telling me, he goes, I've been here 20 years. I've never seen someone get a hundred on it. And I'm like, I just walked out of the room. I dropped the mic <laughs> and I walked out of the room. Bam. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> so does this like entail actually flying with someone or is it just like the instrument, like you're on the ground kind of exam? It's the FAA's multiple choice exam on all things instrument flying related as an, that you would need to know as a ground instructor. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cause what's going through my mind is my son who's 15 is taking driver's ed right now. You have to be that adult that gets in the car with them and that could be a scary proposition given that, you know, this 15 year old probably doesn't know exactly what he's doing, but I could only imagine if you're in that same situation up in a plane having to be like, uh, yeah, this guy does not know what he's doing. Yeah, That's a whole different <laughs> level. Well, of- the good thing is, is, is I do. And yes. I, well, where I'm sitting there, I'll, you don't, whereas you don't have a steering wheel, Noel, in the passenger seat. <laughs> I have a stick that I can always just take. There it is. Two simple words. My aircraft. That's right. (laughs) Well, hey, congrats, man. I know that you've been uh, studying hard for this, and uh, I'm not surprised that you've passed with flying colors. But today, we're going to be interviewing two uh, ladies that are amazing, Renee and Tiffany. I'm going to leave them to introduce themselves in more context. The reason I think this interview is really amazing in the sense of timing is that the last couple of episodes that we've produced, they've all been from the perspective of interviewing couples or individuals who have dealt with trauma, dealt with PTS, 
And while their story has really shed light on like, what does this journey look like for healing? I think what we're going to hear today is from two professional counselors who see a lot of people that are dealing with PTS and get a perspective from them as a professional. Hey, these are the steps. These are things you want to be aware of. This is what you need to think about from their perspective rather than just hearsay or potentially getting it online. So this is going to be a good one, Kenny, and and excited. I know that you actually were in your exam. So I, just so the listeners know, I did the interview. There's one part where you join and asked a question, but other than that, we'll jump right in and kind of hear from them and then wrap this up. Well, welcome to this episode with Renee and Tiffany. Super excited about having them on the show. When it comes to first responder issues and looking at all the perspective from PTS to just the stress on the job, these two not only speak from a place of true experience, practical experience, but also the knowledge of being counselors. And I think you're going to get a real sense of that as we jump into this interview. But welcome, Renee and Tiffany. Thanks for joining us. Noel, thanks for having us. Thank you. It's pretty cool to be here. Well, I'm excited for this. And I think what would be helpful for our listeners is maybe just do a quick intro of the two of you, who you are, what role do you play within your department? And then we'll jump into some of the questions. Yeah, so I'm Renee Cox, and I have been a licensed mental health counselor for actually over 20 years. And I first started working with first responders in a training capacity where I taught law enforcement de-escalation skills and signs and symptoms of mental illness. And what that led was to a relationship with certain individual officers, including Tiffany. I became the peer support mental health professional with a couple of different departments supporting officer wellness. And I also have a private practice where I primarily see first responders. Is this typical where you see someone who has a private practice who is embedded in the department or is this kind of an exception? No, it's an exception. um, Definitely. And I actually am peer support for a couple departments that I'm not embedded in. The private practice is actually separate. My role within the departments is to help run debriefs after a critical incident, to be available for consultation for the officers who are on the peer support team if they're dealing with somebody one-on-one and they need some guidance, as well as individual officers can seek me out for anonymous conversations as well. My private practice, I actually wouldn't see officers from the three departments I'm contracted with. That would be separate folks from different departments to not blur those boundaries. Got it. Great. Cool. Tiffany. Thanks for that introduction. I am (laughs) Tiffany Trombley. I work for a municipality police department as a police officer. I've been doing law enforcement for 15 years. I've been on our peer support team since about 2012. And then more recently, five years ago, I went back and got my um, master's degree in counseling. And so I'm a practicing counselor also in Washington State. And so I have that experience with on the job and out in the field. Yeah. And it's such a unique perspective. I I think, you know, having had conversations with you, I mean, you're really able to speak to, I've lived it and I've also been in the counseling environment, which the the blend of those two, I think is going to be invaluable on this episode and kind of just tapping into it. So let me start here. As a professional counselor, as you both described, What would you say are some of the top issues that you're seeing for first responders right now? 
Yeah, so as far as what folks come in presenting with, it most often is actually relationship issues. But I want to back that up by saying most first responders I've met, uh, maybe surprisingly to people, have very solid foundations in their relationships. They actually married well. (laughs) They found someone who's a good match, someone who is supportive of what they do for a living. But what it's led to the job itself has led to the stress and the burnout and yes, maybe PTSD in the officer themselves, which has affected the family, the spouse, and thus the motivation to come in and seek help possibly for the first time. I definitely do see PTSD as well, but I also see a lot of people, which is very exciting to me, that come in with PTS, post-traumatic stress, but they don't, they're not diagnosable. They don't meet that criteria of a disorder and they don't want to. So they come in preventatively, which is, like I said, very exciting. I'm so glad that you described that way because I think in some environments, and we won't get into the naming of those environments, but then in certain certain circles, there's this idea that we're dealing with people that are broken and they're, they, you know, they already have issues, compounded issues. And that has not been my experience as we've had a chance to work with first responders. Truly, I think they have amazing marriages and it's the stress of the job that creates some of these dynamics that they have to work through. So I'm glad that you addressed it from that perspective. You know, I think we all have if you've been in marriage for any length of period of time, you know that it comes with its own challenges. Um, but then you add the environment of stress and the things that you're seeing on a day-to-day basis, and it is compounding, and that can be challenging. So, yeah, thanks for kind of teeing it up that way. And when you look at first responders that know that they need this, that they know that they need that enrichment, or they really are dealing with PTS. What creates that leeriness of coming and seeking this out from a counseling perspective? And why do you think that is the case? I would say as a first responder myself, admitting that you might need to seek out professional help is like one huge barrier because you have this fear of judgment from your department, from your partners, from people that you care about because you feel like you have to be this rock for everybody else. And so to admit that you might be struggling yourself is just a challenge and can't overcome that sometimes to bring yourself to seek professional help. Piece that I also see is they're worried about the confidentiality aspect. And first responders have no less confidentiality than any other citizen out there, meaning the duty to warn and break confidentiality is only there when there's suspected child abuse, when there is an imminent risk to self or others that they are going to leave your office and hurt someone or themselves. And that is rarely the case. And so they are bound by the same confidentiality that anyone else has. I can't call their boss. I can't call their department. I can't say, you know what, I'm going to write a letter saying you can't work because you have PTSD. None of that is true. And so I love, I'll be honest, having this platform to get that word out there, that it is extremely confidential. And I don't want to see that be an obstacle. Is this sometimes a result of administration and there's this element of, I can't really show my true colors of what's going on because that could impact my future career. How much would you say there's an association to that in terms of them being reticent to reach out for help? Mm. I'm going to answer that one because of my work with teaching officers across the state. And that ends up being where I've gotten a lot of my clientele. I have heard from 
employees of variety of departments. And so I also feel good about not outing anyone, agency or department. I've seen officers from municipalities, from sheriff's offices, from state troopers, and it really does depend on administration. That's a huge part of how supported officer wellness is. And there's one thing to support officer wellness, which everyone says they do, but not as many departments I see support officer illness. That when there's a problem, there's pushback. Oh, why did this happen? How can we fix this? And yes, we want to fix it, but sometimes it's not a very empathetic approach to fixing. So I think we still have room to grow in our society in this area. Tiffany, yeah, I'm curious on your perspective as an officer and kind of rubbing shoulders with those who are dealing with the day in and day out. Do you find that there can be somewhat of a, a challenge to seek the necessary help because of that stigma from an administration? I would say there's definitely, like Renee said, room to grow in each piece. But I do think that we are getting better over the years that I've been doing this. I know that I've even seen within our own agency this growth of support. And I think it's wonderful. And it does spread. So if you're a leading department where you have the support from your administration and other officers hear it, it's almost like there's a way to demand that this needs to happen and that it's not going to go away. And so regardless of whether or not the administration is poo-pooing it or whatever, you're demanding that this is something that society is recognizing needs to happen. Yeah. So let's just say, and we're not going to name any <laughs> name any agencies on this one, but let's just say you're in a community where this idea of seeking help is somewhat met with, well, this could jeopardize your future career or promotion. How would they go about destigmatizing counseling wellness and, and, and this whole concept of prevention? Kind of getting buy-in. I mean, there's things that we offer, and I mean, not to toot the stronger family's horn here, but there is an opportunity to show administration that these are things that are good for families, that are good for their officers. And so this idea that, gosh, if we can get buy-in to show you that this is an important, valuable step in the mental health of your officers means that you're putting your people out on the road in a safe situation. So I think that it would be a better suited department if you were able to look at it from that perspective of we're now putting our best officers in the best conditions out on the road to serve their community. And one thing I I will say that our department is doing really well is they're bringing an officer wellness segment to every in-service, to every training day. There's a portion that is dedicated towards learning about the physiology of a critical incident that's learning about the effects of sleep and shift work. And I see that more and more being incorporated into conferences, into training days, And I think that it is going in the right direction overall. I couldn't agree more. And I think there is an element of bringing that education, right? It's it's educating folks on why is this valuable? Why does this actually matter in terms of prevention versus crisis? And I think for so many agencies, they're always dealing with the crisis and they're not seeing like, how do we get upstream on this so that we're preventing some of this ahead of 
when it becomes a crisis for the individual, and then which has completely different ramifications in terms of what that's going to look like and show itself in in the department. That's good. Well, let's shift to this. I, I think one of the things that we've seen and we've heard is this element of when we're talking about a first responder, they are typically the type who puts on the cape, who kind of has the motto that I impenetrable. I'm the hero that's going to run in and save the day. I mean, all those kind of, you know, whether you want to call it uh, stereotypes, but I think really accolades to who they are. And it really does create the environment for them to be successful in the job also works against actually seeking out the help. And I think one of the things I want to hear from you guys is one, what kind of modalities and techniques do you see when you're dealing with PTS and how do you help first responders see that it's okay to take off that cape, to be vulnerable and seek out the help that they need? Cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the most known technique or intervention in most therapies is not necessarily the best approach for folks that do this kind of work. What it leaves out is the physiology. And that, of course, as we know, that's such an important component of not just trauma, but even before that, even just stress, just the high intensity of the job of a first responder comes with so much that impacts your body, your physical aspect of your life that you have to incorporate that into the emotional healing or else it's being done in a vacuum. So just a multi, definitely a multi-approach or multi-perspective counseling in general. To be specific, a lot of people have heard of, and if they haven't, to talk about EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And that's a technique that's been around for quite a while. It is can seem very bizarre when you hear what it is, but it is very measurable, very well-researched, and very successful in incorporating that piece of it into therapy for officers. I would add that there's other, if, if someone doesn't like it or it doesn't seem to be working, there's something called lifespan integration, which is just one example of you know, a lot of different kind of specialty therapies that is out there that looks kind of like it sounds at someone's entire life and at the good and the bad and the healing moments and the difficult moments, traumatic moments if they're there and integrates them within the thought process and emotional processing of the client to get to a more solid and stable place. And I'd like to add that be choosy, be choosy about the therapist or the counselor that you go and see, if they aren't practicing in the techniques that suit the first responder in that way, and I'll just use an example here. When I sought out professional help years ago, I kept asking my counselor, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you do you get it? And I was looking for somebody that actually understood what I was talking about. And so it's rare that you will meet a counselor or a therapist that can really relate to some of the things that you're going to, because it's just so shocking, the stuff that we see. And so to go and talk to a person that hasn't had that experience with dealing with first responders, I think that that portion matters. Renee, I want to circle back to what you're talking about, EMDR versus lifespan. Mm-hmm. Have you found that in the clients you've worked with, one is preferable or has a better success rate? Interesting question because they are on very different timelines. And so I do 
a very thorough job of explaining. I actually usually start with kind of three options and then the tree can branch from there if either we find that some different path works or if we come up with a different idea for either I come up with an idea for that person or they come up with something. But kind of the way I will initially present it is we can do somewhat traditional talk therapy where we just stay kind of goal oriented. We stay fairly solution focused. Here's what you don't like right now. Here's where you'd rather see your life. Let's work on coping. Let's just talk about this. And a lot of folks we'll still pick that. And that's, that's okay. I will intervene if I feel we're not making good enough progress because we're not digging deep enough, or again, dealing with the physiological layers enough. I will then say I'd like maybe to consider switching to one of the others. But then again, I will present the EMDR and I'll present the lifespan. The lifespan is, takes a lot of time. You mm-hmm. really do walk through the entire life of significant events. You actually walk through some neutral events to look at when life was not as intense. And it takes a big commitment both inside and outside of the therapy office. Whereas EMDR, you really can just look, I don't want to deal with this crap outside of your office, Renee. And it works really well for that. We can get pretty intense, do the EMDR, And then make sure they're okay, of course, but then they leave and they're not back until the next time and not having to do a lot of homework. So it's just really, they're just really different. Yeah. I think it leads me to my next question around what is the average length that someone would need to be in counseling for this to effectively start to see a change? Is it not to compare this to chiropractic work, but sometimes, you know, you go to a chiropractor and the first time it's like, well, this is your issues and it's going to be five years of you coming in weekly before we're going to actually see him. No, I'm just kidding. I I love my chiropractor, but you know, there is that (laughs) element of like, well, how long is this going to take and how many, you know, sessions are we going to need to to have to really start to see a difference? So Renee and I are both going to answer this. And I want to say that as a first responder, we're looking for a quick fix for most of the time. And so I would say that some of the modalities that we would lean into a lot of the time is going to be that, hey, I need you to fix me immediately so that now I can go back and go do what I do best, which is help the Mm -hmm. community, put on my superhero cape. So Renee? Yeah, it's interesting because I didn't know what Tiffany was going to say there. And I was going to have a big disclaimer that, ah, I would love you to have another long-term first responder counselor to ask to see if this answer is much different because I feel like I'm unique in that I actually try to accommodate that. Now, not against clinical judgment. If I think somebody has a lot of work to do, I'm not going to say, hey, I think it's totally fine for you to only come three times. I would never do that. But I have, for example, one of the most common times I get called is after a critical incident, an officer-involved shooting, a traumatic call with a child death, and they're not somebody that has layers and layers of trauma in their life. They are not someone I would diagnose with PTSD. They really do just need some kind of tips and tools and maybe normalization about what they just went through. And I've seen some of those people two times, three times maybe. And that's genuinely all they need. I, again, want to be accurate for their success. And if somebody comes in where they already have layers and that critical incident is just what finally brought them in or the relationship issues brought them in, then absolutely, I'm going to say it's going to be longer term. 
But I think Tiffany would agree that it's pretty individual. So unlike chiropractic, I wouldn't want to give (laughs) it's eight to 12 sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you guys gave enough room for there not to be someone saying, well, I heard on this podcast, you only have to go two times. We just put out that boilerplate. But I do love the fact that it doesn't take, you know, years and years of intense, you know what I mean? I think we're coming back to this principle that we keep hearing. It's getting preventive, right? Going upstream, like when this stuff happens, not allowing it to compound for years and then seek counseling, which I think is what you're talking about when you say layers. That's when all those layers are built up where it's going to take a lot longer to heal from that. And I would say that most therapists and counselors are going to be upfront. I can say that with my clients, I've said, I don't know a different job where I'm literally every time we meet, I'm trying to fire myself to get you better to where you don't need me. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's almost a disclaimer that I give each one of my clients is I want to see you on this journey and it is my job to fire myself. I don't know any other job that's like that. (laughs) I will add a little, just how I work with couples is I have the same spiel to them about the length of time. And I would say couples, I don't think I've ever met with a couple just once or twice. (laughs) Let's be honest. There's, there's at least a handful of sessions that are usually helpful, even for folks that don't have as much to bring to the counseling office. But I get couples that want to continue in what I, we nickname maintenance therapy. So I have couples I've seen for years, but not super often. You know, I see them once a month or or even once quarter just to check in and have some free communication that's with a facilitator. And if they want to do that forever, I'm not going to stop them. That I, I see the value in that as well. That's good. And actually kind of raises my next question around the spouse of the first responder. So often I think the premise can be the first responder needs us and they need to seek out treatment. But how much do you see that the spouse needs the same type of support? Maybe it's individual, not couples specific, like you were just talking about. But from your perspective, does the spouse who is experiencing not direct PTS, but they are definitely, there's a residual aspect of this. What would you say to that spouse? I didn't say at the beginning that I'm actually a spouse of a first responder as well and a military member. So I would say that this perspective of the first responder spouse is you do hear about all of the things that your spouse chooses to share. Or if you have the opposite, where maybe you don't want to hear that stuff, there is a piece that a hole that your brain wants to fill. And so to seek out a professional to kind of help fill that space so that you're not kind of going down this downward spiral of the what ifs, that can be a scary spot. So we worked a variation schedule where my spouse was working at nighttime. And so nighttime, when you're normally supposed to be sleeping, your person might be out there doing the things that are scary for other people to do. So the thought of harm coming your person's way is a very real, real situation. And just society has changed and perspectives on how they view law enforcement is an additional element. So I would say the worry and the filling of the gaps in the thought process would be an important piece to seek out professional help. Mm-hmm. I actually, I forgot until Tiffany just mentioned that, that when the defund the police movement was at its peak, 
I was approached by various officers with the presenting issue as concerned about my spouse. And so two different departments had me run online uh, spousal support groups for question answers, for tips on coping. That was such a tough time. And I don't think that before that it was an easy time. There, You mentioned not necessarily the PTSD themselves, and that's right, but they definitely can experience something we call vicarious trauma, which is hearing the stories or so true what Tiffany said. Our brains are wired to fill in the blanks and know all aspects of a story. So if they're only telling their spouse part of the story, which might be the right thing to do, but then then they're left kind of filling it in. And, and like she said, the what ifs. And so there's a lot of different aspects of their life that are not going to be the same as the person that's going to their computer desk job. You know, their spouse is going to their computer desk job and, and coming home. <laughs> and I want to add, if you are a spouse and you also have kids, there's this conversation that happens behind the scenes with your children about why daddy's going to work or mommy's going to work. Why aren't they there on holidays? Why aren't they there for my birthday? Why aren't they here to coach my soccer team? Like I'm seeing everybody else's parent doing. So I hope that there's seeking out professional help when those concerns start to come out, because that can be a place where you see sticking points for couples or even the person themselves. I don't want to sound like I'm not being supportive of my husband's job or my wife's job. So there's this idea that you feel guilty about not wanting to support them, but you're the one stuck answering the questions sometimes. One of the things that we've heard a lot, and I'm sure you guys have as well, is this idea that the spouse oftentimes takes it upon themselves to say, I'm the issue. Like my partner is dealing with, whether they're shut down emotionally or they're withdrawn or isolated. A lot of times the spouse says, well, and they begin to think I'm the one that's causing this. Mm -hmm. When in fact, it's because of the trauma, because of PTS. And you know, those, those are the factors. Do you find that the spouse who gets that treatment or seeks out counseling part of it is just giving them a better perspective on why the challenges exist and why it's not them. It's not because of what they're doing that's creating the issues in their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And I would piggyback on that a little bit to say it will also be a good place where you can get appropriate tools to deal with it. If you're just kind of I don't want to see somebody going in a different direction. So as a therapist, you want to give them the appropriate tools to have a good conversation about it. Let's not just sweep it under the rug, things like that in a conversation. Well, this is my final question. And it has nothing to do with you guys, because if anyone's ever had time with Renee and Tiffany, they are the best at what they do. But with that (laughs) being said, we do hear a lot at Stronger Families, this idea that it's really hard to find a good counselor. What would you say to those who are listening? Because this is something that comes up over and over again. Like we tried this, we tried reaching out, we got a counselor. And quite honestly, after the second visit, we were counseling the counselor. Like literally, that's what we've heard from first responders. Tiffany began to address this earlier in asking for, you know, being picky. It's okay. And this is a field where it's very necessary, more so than a lot of different things. I would definitely start by asking if they work with trauma, but specifically with first responders, because 
there is a very rare counselor out there that is not going to answer in the affirmative. Most counselors are going to say, of course, I work with trauma. It's part of, you know, our grad school classes. I'm well-versed in trauma-informed care, which is acknowledging the amount of trauma that's that's really out there in the world. That is can be so different. Imagine a counselor who works with children with sexual abuse in their history, that they might be amazing at that, but that does not translate to working with a first responder couple or a first responder themselves or the spouse. So really that experience I think is huge. Now, I do hear from officers that say, I've got a great counselor, she or he has helped me so much. And they didn't have a first responder specialty, but they just found somebody who got it, who understood. I think personally, I would start with that question um, if they have that specific experience. But if they're from a small town or all the counselors that are recommended are completely full and the waiting lists are, are really long, you absolutely could start with somebody who says that they work with the right aspects, not necessarily first responders, but be picky as far as their personality match for you as well. Did they listen? Do they have the style that you want? Like, do they give you feedback? I've heard some say, gosh, (laughs) they just listened the whole time. And yes, I know counselors are supposed to be good listeners, but I could have just sat with a friend who would do the same thing. I want some advice. I want some feedback. So really think a lot about what they would want and go in with questions and don't feel guilty interviewing the counselor. I'm just thinking of someone who maybe is like, I know I need this. I don't know where to begin the search. I mean, I had one first responder say, yeah, I just Googled first responder counselors in my area. And he goes, that led me down a trail that was a waste of time. Yeah. What would be your guys' suggestion for those who maybe don't have a robust department where this is all built out? I would say then talk to a neighboring department or seek out a place through your peer support team if you have one. I know that we keep on hand kind of a list of counselors when I hear feedback of, oh yeah, this counselor was really amazing. They were just what I needed. But I want to piggyback on what Renee said. The way one works for one person, it may not work the same for the other. So I've heard feedback on many counselors that are like wonderful for one person, but maybe they were a personality like Renee was saying that is a little bit more listening versus a person that's going to be direct. And so I need, maybe you're the type that really needs somebody to be direct in the situation. I will say this specifically too for couples counseling is you're going to have to weigh that because maybe your spouse or the person that you're bringing with you cannot handle somebody that's very direct and you need somebody that's a little bit soft-spoken, you're going to have to shop around. So I use this analogy when I'm thinking about finding a really good counselor, which is you're not going to marry the first person that you go on your first date with. Date around, find a good counselor, (laughs) try several if needed, and then commit to at least a session, maybe two, because they may be doing a lot of thinking themselves to find the best way to reach you. I love that. That's a great analogy. Date around, find the right person. It's true. It is very true. It is very true. The first time, I mean, if you've had that experience and you locked in on a a counselor the first time, count yourself blessed and unique (laughs) because it doesn't generally go down that way. Well, thank you both for the work that you're doing. 
it's so needed. And I think like we've started in this conversation, more conversation needs to happen around this and especially just the stigma that can often be there with counseling. So yeah, thank you. Thank you from Strong Families, but also personally, just seeing the work that you guys do. It's amazing. And if you're out there listening right now and you have questions, man, we would love to get those questions, answer them on the the next episode. And you can do that by going to strongerfamilies.com slash podcast and throw your question in there and we will make sure that we cover it in upcoming shows. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Noel. Thank you. Well, I don't know about you, Kimmy, but one of the things I love about the podcast and when we get to interview people like Tiffany and Renee is the level of competency that they share. I think that's one of the things that I just super attractive to in terms of hearing someone that really understands what they're talking about. They know their stuff so well. That certainly was the case listening to Tiffany and Renee, especially from their perspective, right? Tiffany as a cop and a a professional counselor. And then Renee, who's got tons of years of experience. To me, the big takeaway that I walked away from this interview was that there is the opportunity to actually heal and to get the help that they need. And I think that's one area that sometimes in our society, people are kind of the stigma of you're broken, you're never going to get better. They really put some light on that and said, no, that's not true. They couldn't give us a percentage, but the vast majority who seek out that help, who have a qualified counselor to go through or a residential treatment center that they've been able to go and process, they are getting better. They're getting healed. And to me, man, that just speaks hope. And I hope that those that are listening know that that reality is out there for them. If you're dealing with PTS, it's not a hopeless situation. There's a lot of hope. And now getting the right team around you of counselors and treatment and all that, that I think there's some work involved. But what I heard from them was, you know what, you can get better. You can get heal from the trauma that you've gone through. So I, I'd love to hear what your key takeaways were. That's really great. But that's what you do know. You're always about hope and healing. <laughs> Have to be, and, you know, just yeah, hope. You're happy, hope. You know, and, and, and that, <laughs> you know, I want to touch on that part that you said about, it's great to hear from people who are such experts. And so the authorities and what they talk about, but you and I have met some authorities and people that talk that are about as exciting as a thumbtack. Like they're at least Renee and Tiffany have a personality. So I, I want to, you did a good job finding them because they were just a, a joy to listen to talk. And um, they definitely do have some insight. And, and as far as the hope part, remember when we first started this one, there were some intrepidations or trepidations that I had about, using the word hero and using the word PTSD as a disorder and then throwing things in like, we didn't want it to sound like a heavy, we don't want you to feel hopeless. You know, when I went, I have hundreds, hundreds of hours of therapy and counseling over the years. And I never went into any one of them thinking I was hopeless. I just knew that whatever it was that I had was just getting in the way. It was getting in the way to where I wanted there had to be a better place in my headspace than where I was at. I wasn't allowing myself to be happy. And what I love about Tiffany and Renee is they have done enough of this with so many people that they've seen the other side. 
they know where you can get to. And even if it's not a hopeless thing, if it's getting in the way, there's a better place you can be. And that's that's really why Noel and I are doing this whole thing and why our team is finding the resources and the money and spending time to make this happen is because we want to see you get to that other side, just as Renee and, and Tiffany have said. And I think the thing that struck me the most about what they, from a counselor's perspective, Noel, is they started using words and themes that, Again, are repeating throughout this entire podcast series we're doing. The first thing Renee talked about was, okay, I go in and I'm supposed to be this, I'm the person who's saving folks and I'm supposed to be this hero that doesn't admit my weaknesses. And I went, hero, here we go. Remember when you and I first started this, that's where we decided, okay, let's redefine what hero is because that is jacking people up. (laughs) The hero is the person who struggles through the entire story. Again, show me a hero. I write you a tragedy. You struggle to get to the other side. And in finding out and healing yourself and becoming that, the hero now is more capable to help others. That's what we're trying to get you to. You're the hero going through the struggle so you can get yourself better, so that you can better serve the people around you, your spouse, your family, your community. And then I think the other one, the other word is vulnerability. How many times have you and I heard that? That she, Tiffany threw that one out there. The vulnerability that is required of this is, is this something you're going to have to learn to muster up and suck it up and be vulnerable because <laughs> we're no, we're no good at that one. It is true. These themes keep coming up. And I think we're going to find that as we delve into new stories and hear from other guests. It's just a part of human nature. But I think specifically, it's about this community. They are recognizing more and more, the more I'm vulnerable, the more I'm willing to take off the cape, the hero complex of I've got to save the day. That's when there's an invitation to heal, to grow, to really be able to be at that maximum strength, uh, whether that's in their relationship or just in their personal life. So right on, man. I couldn't agree more. And uh, just really, again, if you're listening to this podcast, we want to continue to give you those resources. So join us, strongerfamilies.com slash podcast. We are going to continue to build out the resources that you need to be successful in life. Uh, Until next time, we're signing off.